Real quick, everyone. This year, we are really trying to grow the podcast. And one of the best ways to do that is by rating and reviewing the podcast. Whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, help us out by rating and reviewing the podcast. And that'll help us grow and reach new audiences and hopefully continue spreading the important message of prevention. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We are back again with a brand new season. Um, we hope you're doing well. We're into 2022 now. We hope you listened to our first episode that kind of went over um, some of the goals that we have for the season of the podcast. Um, we're hoping to have a phenomenal year, um, just continue growing everything, have some very interesting topics on that you might not necessarily think are related to prevention, but do definitely play an effect. Um, if you are a brand new listener, welcome. We have 40-ish episodes for you to go back and listen to if you're brand new in 2022. Um, and if you're returning, then thank you once again for your continued support. We hope you continue to enjoy this episode as well as everything else that's um, to come. If you're not already, sign up for our mailing list so that you can get notified of all updates, all new episodes and everything like that. Today, we're going to have a pretty unique episode. Um, it definitely still relates to prevention, so let's get into it. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. The Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. Welcome, everyone, to another episode. Today, we are talking with someone who is very qualified. Um, this is Dr. Stephen Trevick. Um, he is actually a one of the physicians that I've worked with um, during uh, my residency training. Um, he did his medical school at University of Illinois in uh, Chicago, his residency at NYU, and his fellowship at Northwestern. He's actually triple board certified. You heard that right, triple board certified in neurology, psychiatry, and neurocritical care. Um, when I worked with him um, at the hospital, we were kind of uh, mostly dealing with stroke stuff, but he has a lot of interest that I found out about and was like, wow, you were a phenomenal guest for this podcast. Um, he loves talking about the patient-physician communication, relationship, medical ethics, and um, end-of-life discussions, advanced directives, goals of care, probably a whole bunch more that I haven't mentioned. He loves educating. Um, so we got a lot of education while I was working with him, and he practices all around Chicago. So Dr. Trevick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So uh, you have such a broad range of interests and are triple board certified. What do you do on a day-to-day -day, day -day basis and how do you use that large swath of knowledge? Yeah, um, I did kind of meander my way through my educational process. So uh, one thing that makes me very lucky and that I really like is that I get to do a big variety. So my day-to-days can be pretty different. My quote unquote day job is as a neurohospitalist. So that means that I'm a neurologist for people in the hospital setting. I, I don't take care of patients in clinic generally. So most of those people are going to be, as you said, stroke is a, over half of my uh, care, especially if you include kind of broader things like bleeds in the head of different types, which are vascular neurology, but not technically stroke. Um, I do a couple of 
extra things along the way i fill in um kind of when people need vacations uh doing inpatient consult work in psychiatry um at northwestern so that's uh, when they need a psychiatrist or somebody who's admitted to the hospital for a different reason. I also do a clinic where I am take care of people where they're not sure if it's a neurology question or a psychiatry question, where neurologists send me patients who they want to help figure that out. So I try to keep my um, involvement in all those different fields by doing a few different things. But at NYU, uh, where I trained in neurology and psychiatry together, they told me the goal of the program was to get to the point where you didn't really know which one you were doing by the end of the day, if you were on psychiatry <laughs> or um, neurology. I actually used to also moonlight in medicine. And in the same day, I would do a morning in neurology, afternoon in psychiatry, evening in medicine. And people would go up to me and say, Dr. Trevick, I have a question for you. Uh, can you answer this? And I'll go, what time is it? <laughs> um, but I think that's very true. And, you know, sometimes people, uh, the difference between psychiatry and neurology in many ways is just historical. You know, the fact that um, schizophrenia is treated by a psychiatrist and other forms of dementia are treated by a neurologist doesn't really make sense that it is just another form of dementia. Um, a lot of that has to do with historical understandings of diseases, which have shifted. Um, you can think of, I, I, I don't think it's wrong to estimate saying that psychiatry is kind of the software of the brain and neurology is the hardware, but there's a lot of exceptions to that. Um, there's a lot of diseases that fall in between. Uh, but my part where I think personally where it works for me the closest is in family discussion. And unfortunately, as a neurohospitalist, I see people with some of the most devastating diseases and some of the most unexpected diseases in the hospital. Um, I can scare everybody pretty easily. You know, there's the top 20 neurology ways you can be dead tomorrow and feel fine the day before. Um, <laughs> and the, or, or severely disabled more commonly. So that's really hard for people to understand. And um, I, I sometimes am kind of amazed that we don't have more psychiatric training for people um, just to talk about that, support families and prevent some of the additional trauma that we can accumulate in the hospital setting. Definitely. I actually, until you mentioned, I didn't realize that psych and neurology could be kind of considered so similarly. And you think about these very similar diseases like the schizophrenia versus other types of dementia as one is a psych and one's in neurology. And uh, with the history of diseases, both of these also probably at some point were taken care of by like someone religious versus anything to do with medicine. So it's also interesting to see the uh, differentiation in these fields from medicine, from like the spiritual, as well as the psychiatry and the neurology that kind of seem to keep going in opposite directions. And I like how you bring them back together. Um, it, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, say another, I, I mean, tick disorders and OCD are very overlapping things that, again, you're not sure of, but it's just such a funny um, thing. They used, there used to be two diseases treated by the same people in the same setting um, called dementia senalis and dementia praecox. And senalis meant that you get when you're older, praecox means you get when you're younger. And mm -hmm. they were just, you know, two types of dementia. And it basically had to do with um, a guy named Alzheimer was able to find some findings under a microscope for people who mm. died with um, dementia senalis and it became Alzheimer's disease. And then other forms of dementia were just ones that didn't follow his typical pattern. 
they always call um, schizophrenia the graveyard of the neuropathologist because nobody was able to find something under a microscope. And so we mm-hmm. assumed it was behavioral for a long time. And dementia praecox is now known as schizophrenia. Um, but it, it was assumed to be behavioral because they didn't find something, even though they were previously yeah. two sides of the same coin. And now we know that's not true. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, going off of that, as well as you kind of talking about the uh, diseases where one day you could be doing great and the next you could be, unfortunately, not doing so well, um, whether it's either dead or just really disabled. That's kind of far away from what we would traditionally think of preventive medicine. And this is the Preventive Medicine Podcast, and it still does relate, though. So I want to ask you, given all these hats you wear, given everything that you've seen, what does preventive medicine mean to you? Yeah, well, I mean... The- to be fair, um, of course, a great deal of it falls into things I'm sure all your other guests have spoken about. Most, um, I don't know the numbers in front of me, a great deal many strokes uh, are related to um, the classic atherosclerotic risk factors. So that's high blood pressure, diabetes. So getting checked, getting all those things, even when you feel good. Unfortunately, it's a pretty common thing um, in my clinical practice for somebody's diagnosis of diabetes or hypertension um, or high cholesterol to be made after their first stroke. Um, some of these can be a bit earlier. Um, but as you say, as, as you kind of point out, I mentioned, um, there's a lot of exceptions to that. And a lot of strokes happen out of the blue. Um, we get these injuries to the arteries that can be from relatively minor trauma or we wouldn't even go see a doctor. Sometimes we don't even find out why. And it's not terribly uncommon for me to see pretty severe strokes in 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds who may not even have other risk factors. Um, It's very common to have blades in your brain from... uh, abnormalities that are vascular anomalies that we would never look for. Um, And there's other weirder things that can just pop up. Um, And that's why for anyone, and I'm hoping listeners of your podcast would be sensitive to this, uh, it's a good idea to have some understanding of your medical care and needs before going to the hospital, whether that is really filling out um, formal uh, advanced directives or simply talking about it with your families. I would say ideally the both, but if you have to pick one advanced directives without having your family members be aware of them and understanding can be really hard for your family members to implement and respect. Um, there's usually some check boxes on there and which of the words in the boilerplate have meaning to you is something that as a physician, just looking at the paper, I can't tell. And I don't want to respect the paperwork. I want to respect the patient. Um, But if somebody speaks to their family members, obviously nobody can expect the sorts of things that we see, but if they have some feelings about what you would want, then we'll be able to give much better care. 
Definitely. I think there's a couple things that I want to point out there. Um, you mentioned advanced directives, which we'll talk about in just a little bit, um, as well as kind of that communication between families, patients, and physicians. Definitely, we'll get to that. I think there's a huge component of prevention there as far as quality of life goes. But first, I want to touch on the fact that you said there are a large percentage of strokes. Um, I don't have the number in front of me either, unfortunately, that can be prevented through lifestyle measures, through getting regular care. Um, as you're saying, uh, a lot of these people get new diagnoses of diabetes, hyperlipidemia, all of these things after the fact that they had a stroke. So getting preventive care before that, having regular um, follow-up with a primary care physician, appropriate lab work, screenings, all those kinds of things is very important. Um, but the other thing that I want to point out is that sometimes stuff happens. Um, even if you were on top of your preventive care, maybe there is that um, malformation of arteries that you just randomly have in your brain that decides to bleed one day. There's nothing you can do about that. So the thing that we've said on this podcast over and over also is that there is a time and place for preventive medicine, but you can't prevent everything. You can't reduce your risk of everything. Sometimes stuff happens. So that's kind of towing the line a little bit um, of what preventive care is and kind of what we can do and leaving the rest up to whatever you want to believe in. Um, so I do want to point that out as well. And that's one of the things that I think this episode will highlight. And then we can start talking about what happens next if those catastrophic things happen to prevent maybe future harm to patients, to families, all those kinds of things. Um, first thing, I know you mentioned that there's other professionals uh, that kind of deal with this more than you and uh, like family medicine, all those kinds of things. But how do you keep yourself out of the neurocritical care unit when it comes to just reducing your incidence of stroke? Is it just like regular care? Is there anything else special that you need to do? Well, I think um, going over if we're going to focus on stroke and vascular risk factors, mm -hmm. um, definitely the standard things of smoking or not doing that. Um, so not smoking, uh, people don't always think of that as a vascular risk factor affecting the brain, but it's one of the main causes of stroke. Um, controlling blood pressure, uh, controlling your cholesterol, which not only by getting cholesterol checked because people don't realize you make most of your own cholesterol. It's not from eating it. Um, but if, so some of that is just genetic and you have to get a test and treat it, but also avoiding saturated fats, meat, um, red meat and, uh, uh, fried foods, at least minimizing them, um, so that they're not every day and, um, diabetes. Those are the main, what we call modifiable risk factors, um, high blood pressure, definitely can contribute to um, a great deal many hemorrhages, not all, but many, um, both those related to vascular anomalies, if you happen to have one or not, um, because some of them aren't related to vascular anomalies. Sometimes they just happen from high blood pressure is usually the main other cause. Um, and then really just being overall health is very important. So if you come in, um, you know, vascular is one part of what I do, vascular being um, things relating to bleeding and stroke. Uh, I also, in the hospital, would see a great deal, many people with seizures or inflammation of the brain or meningitis of various sorts. And those are often more unavoidable uh, or trauma where, of course, nobody's trying to get into a car accident. Um, but uh, they, they're pretty common. You know, 10% of people, up to 10% of people will have a seizure sometime in their life, but 1% of people have epilepsy, which is a really high number. Mm -hmm. um, and 
how often what we have to do in those situations uh, across a lot of neurology is um, use medicines that can be pretty sedating. We have to put people out for a while and how you, I can stop seizures in, in just about, just about any, everyone. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and your brain can recover given time, but to be able to tolerate um, that amount of time of laying in bed and being inactive, it's really helpful to have been active beforehand. Um, so again, kind of general health things, but uh, weight, um, just dealing with other medical concerns, whatever medical yeah. problems you have, if they're under control, we're going to be much more successful in keeping you out of the ICU or keeping your stay in the ICU brief. Definitely. So kind of having that physiological reserve and just being generally healthy will improve outcomes. And we've definitely seen that across the board when patients come into the ICU or anywhere else. If they're healthier, they typically tend to get out of the hospital faster. So can definitely um, say to that, I don't have any literature in front of me um, and I haven't read up on that, but I'm assuming that that is well thought in the literature. Um, it is the afternoon and uh, I think you were a psychiatrist in the afternoon. So while we're on the boring question, is there anything you can do like boring wise nutrition diet for psychiatric illnesses or is that kind of a foregone conclusion? <laughs> Um, that's an interesting part. I know I might have just might have just tossed no, you a difficult I, one. I, I have a. It wasn't scripted. <laughs> you didn't send me that one before. Um, <laughs> no, um, I, I um, that's a really interesting question. I think if, if you don't mind a slightly longish answer to that, um, go for it. The thing about psychiatric stuff is that. We tend to like in medicine to talk about normal physiology and abnormal physiology, right? There's the way your lungs work when you're Mm -hmm. hopefully right now. And then there's the way your lungs work when you have COPD. And the problem with with psychiatric things is, okay, if we're talking about schizophrenia, you kind of have schizophrenia or you're not. It's like being pregnant. You kind of have the reason. With most psychiatric diagnoses, um, it's actually normal physiology, And I think that is very hard for people because it's very easy to other psychiatric illnesses and um, just by putting in the word illness, for example. Um, But I I think it's a reasonable word. I'm not arguing against that. Um, But when somebody is depressed or when somebody has OCD or um, phobias or avoidance, these are uh, or, or, or especially definitely including personality disorders. Um, Sometimes people who may be familiar with things like borderline or narcissistic personality Mm -hmm. disorder, these can seem really um, um, esoteric and exotic. And when you read about them, you're like, wow, this is so crazy. I can't believe people think this way. And and for each of the diseases I mentioned, we can spend hours on on understanding them. But eventually what you get into is uh, that actually it's um, a somewhat proportional or pathological level of a behavior that we all engage in. And the first, I mean, it's kind of a Dunning-Kruger sort of thing. Like when you first start learning about, or, or maybe an inverse form, um, when you first start learning about borderline, you're like, what's borderline? And then you start learning about it more and you're like, wow, that's so crazy. And as you learn about it a bit more and you become more um, aware of it and comfortable with it, you're like, oh, everyone I know is like that. We all do that. The question is, 
do we keep it um, at a level that is functional? Is it supportive? And everything that we do psychologically, all these pathological things we do, or that people with psychiatric illnesses do, at some time and in some way is helpful to them and is adaptive. If Mm. it wasn't adaptive in some circumstance, we wouldn't do it. Um, So for my, actually my biggest psychiatric interest is in PTSD and post-traumatic stress disorder, um, which is very related to the hospital because people get a lot of PTSD from the hospital. And definitely everything that people experience from PTSD um, in, in almost all of it, at least like I I would say is adaptive. Um, If you, one of the worst things, one of the, the hardest things to treat is dissociation, this feeling of not really being there and losing control of yourself. But it's a way to protect yourself from the, these horrific circumstances is feeling like you're not there. Um, you feel frightened all the time, but it's obviously adaptive to feel frightened when you're in danger. And when things remind you of being um, of a dangerous situation, you're going to be... Uh, you, you want to be heightened. You want to be ready to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, psychopathology, um, a psychiatric illness, is when one defense mechanism or defense process really overtakes the other ones or just runs rampant and gets in the way of the th- things you want from your life. My job isn't to say you're normal, you're not. My job is to say, okay, here's something that's happening that's not me- getting in the way of you meeting your goals. Um, or that's disrupting society. Um, so sometimes that is external. So I guess that was a long way of going around saying when you're talking about psychiatric illness coming up, there isn't much of a line between preventative and treatment um, in a way because it is these normal mechanisms that – we just need to get under control. I I think it's probably almost more similar to something like obesity um, in that we all have to have healthy eating habits. Uh, You know, we can say don't Mm. smoke. We, if we, we can't say don't eat, or if we do, you have a different eating disorder. Um, So it's something that you always have to balance doing and doing in a healthy fashion. And that's true with fear. That's true with anxiety. And it's true with sadness. Um, It is very unhealthy to, well, I won't say never be sad because nobody's ever, not ever sad, but some people. Happy all the time. (laughs) But there are people who can't accept their sadness and keep their sadness unconscious. Um, That's very true of anger. A lot of people, I, I, I'll say that I'm one of those people, doesn't want to think of myself as an angry person and tries to avoid my anger. And of course, what that actually does is just make it unconscious, have it affect you in mm-hmm. other ways. Or um, when it comes out, it comes out nasty. Um, you need to have you need to bring it to the surface. You need to have it be a healthy part of your life. And that's true of your psychology in general. 
Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of this is more uh, circumstantial, kind of based on your environments, based on kind of the adaptive responses you've developed based on your environments, whether that was from your parents growing up and kind of modeling your responses based on what you saw growing up, um, your friend group when you were growing up, all those different kind of things. It looks like those all play into an effect. And I think that goes along with one of the pillars that we kind of talk about with preventive medicine, which is having a strong support group or emotional support group that you can talk to, having strong relationships with friends, family, all those kinds of things. Sounds like a lot of the preventive medicine for um, these psychiatric illnesses comes from there. Um, we talk about, we had a previous episode with a psychiatrist where we mostly just talked about kind of like the depression and anxiety aspect of mental health and um, psychiatry because there's a large amount of people that experience those kinds of things. And we talked about things like mindfulness, um, just kind of mindful practice, all those different kinds of things and the power that those have. Um, would you say that those can help in things like the psychiatric crisis? And what is the difference between the poor mental health with the depression, anxiety versus what you're talking about? Um, yeah, I, um, let me try to think of how to answer that. I, I think that uh, what you've mentioned makes perfect sense. So you were kind of referring back to a conversation Um discussing good social supports and such. And I think that's very, that is one very helpful thing. Um, It's hard for me to make a very broad statement because of course, social supports of that kind can be variable. They can be more or less available to individuals and Quite often, our fear of avoiding of losing support keeps us in unhealthy relationships. It's mm-hmm. there are people who are much more introverted and require less, um, or aren't ready for the same types of interactions that other people are. So, I think variety of defense is very important to. Being able to laugh something off is a really important skill, but if you laugh off everything, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Um, It's going to really involve finding a couple of different ways that you can deal with different stressors and also realize you don't have to confront everything at once. Um, You know, sometimes there is such a thing as healthy narcissism. you can't just think of yourself as one in a billion or one in seven billion. You have to be able to maybe alter reality a little bit and maybe what we call a little neurotic and think, hey, this project I'm doing is the most important thing in the world. Why? Because it's helpful for me to think so, and that's fine. Um, I guess that leading into the the second part of that question of when does it become a crisis? Often psychiatric crises, and there's different types, um, happen when that comes crashing down, when you don't have as many defenses as you need and something that's really important or necessary to your view of yourself um, falls apart. So if you... um, we, we have our views of ourselves and it's not always what makes you happy. It's what you kind of need to believe. I might feel happy if I'm social or if people like me, but I need to believe that I'm an effective doctor. Um, and if mm-hmm. I were to be confronted with something where, wow, 
it just turns out it wasn't, you know, I can laugh off a lot of things. I can explain away a lot of things. But if there was something where I was like, I found out, oh, wow, I really should have failed this class. My grades were lower than everybody else or something like that. That would often throw people into a crisis if you don't have something else there to back it up. So it's kind of when the um, carpet is pulled from under you. That's what I would refer to as a crisis, which isn't always the same thing as just a worsening or a moment where you mm-hmm. confront that you have to get care. Usually by the time that somebody, I wouldn't say usually, quite often when people come to see me as a psychiatrist, they show up and um, I'm amazed they haven't seen a psychiatrist before. They are having literally panic attacks multiple times a day for years and just thought that was normal. It's like the frog in the water that doesn't jump out till it's boiling. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you just don't realize how much it's built up. And then are they in a crisis? Well, it's a really good time to intervene. And it's an opportunity to improve. Um, and then you require really aggressive care right there because you can benefit from it. Definitely. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. I think the discussion um, regarding kind of the psychiatric illnesses or whatever the kind of state of your mentation is at that point, turning into crises is very interesting. And I think that unfortunately, when people get to the point of crises and when that rug does get pulled out, like you were saying, it just stays there. And these people get labeled as weird, quote unquote, or irregular, quote unquote, and then they become closed off, whether it's from their support system, if they had one in the first place, it's from the friends that they had, like uh, everyone just thought this person was a little weird, but we still keep them around. And they go into this quote unquote crisis, and then all of a sudden they're closed off and it kind of exacerbates and makes everything even worse. Um, first part of this question where this is going is that these people even sometimes get left out by like the physicians. Um, and we're like, Oh, this person just has a mental crisis. We don't want to treat them that much. You always have like, when you're on the floors, you have the psych patient that no one wants to deal with because it's a handful. Um, so how do you communicate with these patients where they've been quote unquote, like closed off or kind of the rugs just been pulled out from under them. They seem to be all alone. Yeah, there, ooh, there's a lot to say there. Um, <laughs> um, I like asking these big questions. Just get yeah, I hope you don't mind long answers. Um, so a, yeah. a couple of things there. First of all, I mean, the the whole I, I think kind of broadly, what's the problem with labeling somebody a psych patient? Because that's very common in the hospital. Non medical yeah, medical people who are listening, you get that all the time, and. People will say, oh, this patient will have a history of, you know, COBD and stage three CKD and this type of stage up with this process and psych. And you're like, that's a feel, not a disease. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's very different if they are chronically schizophrenic versus have a personality disorder versus a PTSD, right? It's um, anxiety. It's, it's just all over the place. And what that could mean for them and what that can mean for their care is really different. And often people will have quite a variety of preconceived notions that will affect um, treatment. I think people do it um, can 
have that happen in themselves as well. So once you get a psychiatric diagnosis, you know, there's a lot of different ways to understand psychiatric illnesses and they have different places depending on which psychiatric illness we're talking about. Um, For some people, it's very helpful to think of things very biologically. You know, my serotonin is, uh, my serotonin receptors are off kilter. Or for some people, it's more helpful to think, oh, this is just a, you know, a therapy issue that I can work through in therapy or a familial issue that's really a family thing. And that has a lot to do with how people view themselves and how people view the world. And um, I know actually culturally, um, I was talking to a psychiatrist from India, and uh, this was very anecdotal, but he was saying that there a lot of people didn't want the biological description because they took that as something against their family, which was seen um, as much more problematic mm. as opposed to just issues to work yeah. through. Here, I feel like people often feel a little bit more validated saying, oh, this is a biological issue. This is something inborn. This is in my DNA. I'm not, uh, it's not just a willpower thing. And I think that has a great deal to do with the worldviews of those cultures. And medically, I'd say they're both wrong and they're both right. And it depends on the situation and the illness. And we probably don't know 90% of the time. And it probably doesn't matter. I don't need to figure out if something's genetic or um, biological or what have you in order to support the person um, and identify some problems and help them. And what will happen sometimes is people will say, oh, I can't do this because of my illness. People often say, you know, ask me for how much time they need off work. And I'm like, well, if you're in the hospital, I'll write you a note. Um, Of course, uh, ideally, you go back to work. Um, It's very hard to become healthy when not engaging in normal activity. And people can write themselves out of the narrative. And um, one little trick in communication, and I think it's helpful in a lot of situations, is to replace um, the word but with the word and when discussing emotional things. Mm. They mean the same thing. People don't realize that. You know, um, the dog is white, but the cat is black is the same meaning as the dog is white and the cat is black. The only thing that but does is invalidates the first Mm -hmm. part. It makes one thing important and one thing Mm. not. And um, so, you know, that's why it's very invalidating to say, I know you're angry, but you can't yell here. But it's a little bit better to say, I, I understand you're angry. Interesting. And you can't yell here. Or ideally, we can't yell here. There's a place where you can't, where we can't yell. And that's saying these both things exist in attention, but they both need to be recognized. How do we support that? Um, I'm really depressed. I don't have any energy. And, I, and I'm going to work. That's like uh, sounds a lot better than, but I'm going to work. But I still have to go to work. You know, um, you can't even say it quite the same way because it's so internalized there. So it's, um, I think using psychiatric illness to write things off is, is really problematic. I think it's also really problematic when we're looking at like famous people or, political figures and trying to figure out what sort of psychiatric pathology they have as if all forms of being 
um, a jerk are due to psychiatric illness and as if having a psychiatric illness makes you a jerk. Some people are just jerks. And I don't really feel the need <laughs> to make a psychiatric diagnosis for everyone I don't like. And mm-hmm. I don't know any psychiatric illness that I've identified where I haven't met people who have it, um, who I can diagnose with it, who I do like. And um, those are very independent things. And those get very confused. Um and I think that happens a great deal with people who are labeled with, with psych um, mm-hmm. and what we do to ourselves. And so you just have to realize th- to have a psychiatric diagnosis means there's something going on in your behavior, your programming or, or your neurotransmitters that is causing a problem that we can help with. And Psychiatric illnesses are incredibly treatable. Can we cure them? Often, no. I also can't cure COPD. I also can't cure chronic kidney mm-hmm. disease. Like that's that's medicine. Um, but we yeah. can manage them really well. Um, I always say, if you want the, um, you know, really psychiatrically unstable people, don't go to the psychiatric clinic. Um, they at least know they have to go to a psychiatrist. Go to the neurology clinic. A lot of people are crazy there. Uh, and they don't know what they need. And often my job is to get them to the point where they can get the diagnosis. So somebody having a diagnosis might be better than all the people around them. Definitely. And the, the reason that I asked this question is because, like you were mentioning with that narrative, when someone is labeled with quote unquote psych issues, they're kind of written off and you kind of don't even try to address that issue. You just say psych will deal with it at some point. This person will end up in a psych unit or something at some point. So let's not worry about it. But when we think of other diseases, um, such as like a COPD, um, maybe other reversible causes like a diabetes or whatever, we think about the secondary, tertiary and quaternary prevention. But we never do that for psychiatric illnesses. We just say, OK, they'll just live with with it. We'll keep them on their medications and then maybe they'll be in a crisis, something like that. We don't really think about it actively. We don't use that as an active problem unless you're a psychiatrist, which is incredibly hard to come by in the hospital. They like never come by. Psych consult come by two weeks later. Um, but that's the reason that I asked this but question because everyone just kind of writes it off that. as a narrative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, everyone just like writes them off. The narrative's gone. So they just become closed off in that. And I think that's not what we should be doing in medicine. We should be, um, every problem is related to some extent, in my opinion, at least. And I think some, at least acknowledgement or addressing of how one plays into another would be negligent not to do that in the acute hospital setting, at least. Well, definitely, um, this may be more applicable to those in medicine, um, but there's something called conversion disorder which is something that sounds very esoteric. This is what used to be called a hysterical uh, diagnosis, which is a very offensive and outdated term. Um, But it's when somebody comes in with a complaint or a symptom, which is completely psychiatrically invented. So um, that'll be the person who comes in and they can't move their, their leg as if they had a stroke, but they didn't have a stroke. And what's really interesting is this is thought of as very rare and strange. And you read about this in all the, you know, psych novelizations and books. And it's actually really common. I see it all the time. And uh, partially because of my situation and my setting. And they send me those patients. But Mm -hmm. um, it's very rare for somebody to not move their leg. And there's nothing to do with the leg. Because the brain has to come up with it from somewhere. Now, it might be that their sister had a leg thing or their sister had an arm thing and now they want a leg thing. <laughs> um, 
It might, unconsciously, um, it might be that they have an injury to their leg. Or what's really, really, really common, and this doesn't get labeled as a conversion disorder, is that they have a stroke, but it's not um, as big a stroke as you would think based on their symptoms. So basically you get a stroke that, and I could tell all sorts of anecdotes about this, but you get a stroke that kind of would make your ankle not move and now your whole leg doesn't move. And I often refer to that as converting around a deficit. And the Mm. problem is that that can be very hard to study. You know, the numbers aren't there. It'd be hard to even produce a study like that. Uh, But we see it all the time, um, all the time. And they often do have misdiagnoses because if somebody comes in and they say their leg can't move and then, you know, when they're not even thinking about it, I see them lift up their leg. I could easily write this off as psychogenic, but... I actually haven't proven that their ankle can move and maybe their ankle can't move. And then I'm going to miss that diagnosis. And that sort of thing, unfortunately, does happen a lot. Definitely. And kind of flipping the coin now, we were talking about um, physician communication with patients. Um, And the other interest that you have is kind of communicating with families as well and making sure that that kind of dialogue and communication is there, especially with these diseases that can be more um, uh, critically... I guess dangerous. I don't know what else you would call it. Devastating is the right word. I knew I had a problem with word finding today, but I haven't slept much for those listening to this. But uh, so those devastating things, whether it's a brain bleed or whether someone has an acute psychiatric crisis that's just not able to be communicating with their family and the family has no clue what's going on. Unfortunately, we do a very poor job in medicine sometimes of communicating with families. Um, it's multifactorial due to the immense workload that we have in hospitals. Unfortunately, it's due to like so many patients and families asking so many complicated questions. Lack like, we have of work training to do. We have- that most physicians have. <laughs> that. That as well. I was, I was getting to that. There's a huge lack of training. So we just avoid it because we don't know how to do it. We're not trained. We don't uh, like this is how you communicate with families, how you do it effectively. You're just kind of thrown in the gauntlet. And that was definitely my experience. When I started my ICU rotation, no one taught me how to talk with family. The first day you're talking to them about goals of care. You're like, uh, I guess I'm doing this now. I have to do it properly. But um, can improving communication like this I guess this is a broad question again. Um, can improving this communication improve patients' quality of life? And I guess second half of that is going to be the family's quality of life. I mean, I, I, I certainly hope so because that's kind of what I focus on. <laughs> um, and you're right. There's a lot of things that go into ineffective communication. And it, it, there, I, I actually spend much most of the lectures I give and such on trying to help educate uh, physicians on this. Um, I think a lot of physicians feel like it's just something you're either good at or bad at. And I can assure you that's not true. Um, I've gotten much better at it uh, over time. And yeah, I think I've gotten a lot better this month itself. <laughs> it can happen quickly, but there's also some of it comes from experience. Some of it comes from comfort. Certainly some of it comes from just being a personable individual, but some of it can really be taught. And some of it, um, there really are things you wouldn't naturally think of uh, without some training and without some real exploration. Um, And I think you can, uh, obviously, I'd like a situation where the physician is the one who is wiser and more experienced and more comfortable and is guiding the family through it. But I've definitely seen the reverse. 
And I think it is usually families in the situations I'm talking about because the types of conversations that I'm usually engaged in and that I find interesting, uh, the, the patient's too sick to be engaged, whether they're dying or, or they mm-hmm. just can't right now. I, I personally don't deal with a lot of things like, you know, where you might imagine with a new cancer diagnosis where you feel okay, but you know you have to make some big decisions. Usually yeah. when I'm involved, um, the patient is at their worst. Um, and that can be a hard part because they can look terrible and I can check one little reflex and say, oh, they're likely to wake up. Or I can check one little reflex and say, no, they're not uh, likely to. And um, they can externally look the same. And it can be very difficult for family members to understand what's changed. Um I've definitely witnessed, I I like to think that I'm good at this now uh, after doing psychiatric training and such. Um, I've definitely seen situations where the family member is more comfortable than the provider um, and has better communication skills and guides it in the right way. And I think Mm. there's something really worthwhile being aware of, um, putting a name to, which is modeling. Um, modeling is showing somebody how you can discuss something, how you can um, communicate around those feelings. Uh, I think a way that a lot of doctors who are uncomfortable and as a physician, I mean, you're just a person who's thrown into this situation and eventually a person who's been thrown into the mm-hmm. situation a lot of times. Um but you're still just a person kind of confronting this and you have to go in and talk to somebody about their mom dying and we don't like it. I won't say any more than the family members do because obviously they're going through something much worse. Um, but we, we don't like it either. And you walk in, um, and you don't want to be talking to somebody about their mother dying and you don't want to make them feel worse and you don't know how to do it. So you may be nice, you may be really supportive, um, and you'll tend to um, and you'll tend to talk in euphemism and talk in vagaries and quickly mop things up. So you'll say, um, you know, there's this lesion on a CT that normally is associated with a, a pretty poor outcome. And uh, so these are the things we're going to do. And I mean, first of all, lesion, if it's cancer, just call it cancer. If you think it might be cancer, you say maybe cancer. I know a lot of people will avoid the words. People don't want to say it. People don't want to try to make it real. But words don't make mm-hmm. things real. Reality makes them real. Um Say Mm -hmm. cancer if you mean cancer. Um, And, you know, poor outcome. I don't know what a poor outcome is. It depends on the person. I mean, there's nothing that I hate more than hearing um, a high likelihood of moderate disability. I don't know what high likelihood is. Now, (laughs) I don't think using numbers is always that helpful, but giving something a bit stronger like I'd be pretty surprised if this comes out or, you know, it, it's this is more on the miracle level or this is, you know, one in a thousand sort of thing gives you an idea or, you know, it could really go either way, whether 20 or 40 percent. I don't know how you make a decision around that anyway. Um, and just so that all the patients know, we or, you know, um, non-physicians uh, know, we never have the numbers that accurate because there's so many individual factors that go in. But have some 
firmer concept of what we're talking about, have a firm concept of what is moderate disability, because moderate disability to me might not be using my hands. Moderate disability to somebody else might be being stuck in a bed, but still being able to speak. Um, when somebody's unconscious, it can seem pretty good for them to be awake. But what awake means in neurology is really variable. And people will often say, mm-hmm. well, when would they wake up? And I have to be like, well, what do we mean by awake? Because they're going to wake up, but they're not going to be the same person. And what that means is really hard. And then when you get there, you know, okay, in the quick example I gave, we have this lesion. It's very poorly associated with a good outcome. So blah, blah, blah. And you doctors will jump in to telling you a plan, telling you what we're going to do. And maybe we're rushed, but we're not that rushed. It's we don't want to sit there with the discomfort. Um, I was taught when you give a really scary diagnosis or when you say something really big, you sit with it for a minute. So you say, um, we have the scan and uh, it, it looks like it is cancer. That was four seconds. Four seconds feels like forever. Nobody's ever been late for it. That felt like an eternity. It, the, the software might automatically cut that down. So I'll have to make Don't sure to keep um, that in. Four <laughs> seconds. Everyone just imagine four seconds. <laughs> For, nobody's ever been late for their meeting. Nobody doesn't have four seconds in their day if they're already in the room with you. Mm-hmm. The reason you jump in and say something is because you don't want to sit there with that feeling of, God, I have cancer. God, they have cancer. God, I just told somebody they have cancer. What does that mean about me? And so you're filling in the silence to make it feel better. And aside from getting in the way of any emotional processing, you're modeling that we should be afraid of speaking about it the physician who does that is doesn't want to deal with telling a patient that they have cancer and it makes it that much harder for the patient to confront the fact that they have cancer and know what to do with that information because a lot of cancer is treatable or um i'm sorry that's my mcduff sorry um <laughs> my, my dog just realized it means it's time for my something. dog just realized that he has a reflection in the mirror and he wants to eat it um anyway so <laughs> the um <laughs> so when a physician does that they're showing that it's not something that can be discussed and explored and that's the opposite of yeah. what we should be doing and yeah. for a family member that's all very much on the physician side and they, the physician should be able to guide the conversation properly, but a family member can do it as well. A family member can say, does this look like cancer? And a physician may talk around and be like, well, you know, we haven't been sure and I don't want to say anything until we have the biopsy back and that's going to start talking about oscopies and this and that. Um, Yeah. But at a certain point, even unconsciously, by if, if you know, once the family member has said it, it's easier for the physician to answer back reasonably and say, I'm sorry, I think it is cancer. I'm not sure yet. I'm going to do a test, but that's what we're talking about. And I think that's really useful. Um, there's nothing scarier than something that follows you. Right. In every horror movie, it's the thing that it could be anywhere. Right. 
And when yeah. you're trying to avoid something, I'm terrified of spiders. I can get away from the spider and I can make my husband kill <laughs> with fire. But because I hate spiders, the harder thing to escape from is the images of spiders crawling around inside my head because I can't get rid of those. The scariest yeah. things are the things that we're scared of inside our own heads, thoughts that we're afraid of. One of the most important things in psychiatry is a thought is just a thought. I can sit here and picture slitting my own wrists. I'm not suicidal. I can picture that. I can think of that because it's just a thought. And if you think you may have cancer, you that does not make you have cancer. And if you have cancer, then not thinking about it doesn't help. And you're going to have to think about it eventually. And so talking about things really openly and directly with a physician is going to demonstrate to the physician that you can handle it, that they can talk to you, get better information, and it's going to make your decision-making better. I have a lot of times where I'm talking to somebody about, you know, is this the time where your mother would like us to turn off the machine and let her pass away comfortably? And people say, I can't Mm -hmm. think about that. And I'm not always there with people. You know, that's a process of developing trust. But what I like to say to people is um, you you can think about that. You, maybe that's not the decision that's right for you or right for her. But you can absolutely discuss it and think about it. And you have to because if you don't, you won't make a good decision if you haven't considered both options. Definitely. And um, I think that one of the core tenets maybe of being a physician in general, as well as preventive medicine, is trying to reduce the risk of harm. Um, And whether that's reducing the risk of potential harm from the future, from not doing anything about it, from not communicating something properly, that plays into like the goals of care, advanced directive, all that kind of discussion. Not Maybe not advanced directive in this situation, more goals of care when you're talking with family. But it's talking with family, do we want to continue doing all of this treatment that might be producing more harm than benefit um, and doing all this to kind of keep this image of this person going on versus what's going on and facing those fears? Um, And it's kind of like what you're saying with the spider thing, where if you're in the bedroom, you see the spider, you try to kill it, but it gets away. You're more afraid then than when it was in front of you, because then you just can't sleep because you don't know where it is. So I think being upfront with families about those kinds of things is incredibly important so that you can reduce risk of harm to patients, probably in more ways than one. Well, yeah, I mean, that's actually my greatest interest and what, like, when I used to come write more papers and such, what my um, literature was on, which is very much preventative medicine. It was prevention of PTSD and or whatever other words you want to use for it, um, psychological harm from having a family member be sick and being sick in the hospital and and potentially dying or developing severe disability uh in the hospital and we you can talk about the effect that the disease has on the patient and on their family members but these these worries and these fears and these experiences um and these conversations in the hospital can echo in uh the people who feel that burden of responsibility for making these truly life and death choices for their loved ones, whichever way they make them. I don't think I've done a better job if somebody I think 
um, doesn't have a good quality of life if their family member uh, lets them die uh, or doesn't when I do or don't think that's appropriate. That's not how I'm, or at the very least, that's not the only way that I'm going to gauge my success in the moment. If I feel like that family, um, not just that family member, but that whole family structure is able to continue on in a healthy fashion, um, without developing further psychopathology because often whatever injury it is to the patient has already happened that I can't change, but I can change whether that family stays together and supports each other. I can change whether those people have nightmares about it afterwards and how they feel about themselves. And um, that can really be altered and those psychological traumas can be prevented by appropriate conversations in the hospital. Definitely. And I think that's uh, a little bit of a paradigm shift for a lot of people when they think of preventive medicine. Um, they think of just like the diet, exercise, all that kind of stuff. But all of this is still related. A lot of people carry, um, maybe they have poor lifestyle habits after a significant event happened. Maybe they start smoking after a significant event happened, which is obviously a very poor um, thing you do for your health in general. And a lot of times that inciting event may be the death of a loved one or some other sort of trauma, um, some family member who is sick for a long time. So they developed maladaptive behaviors as far as like smoking, all those kinds of things. So I think having this conversation um, about goals of care, whether it's a sick one, a catastrophic event, whatever it is, can be beneficial not only for that patient, but as you're saying, for the family as well, um, as far as grief response, helping them kind of cope with it, um, having an appropriate grief response, um, and so on. Um, how... I know we talked about this a little bit already, but and I don't want to go on too long because we're already close to an hour, but how can a physician kind of dictate that grief response and make sure that it doesn't go to the pathology PTSD type thing? Or is that something that's more up to circumstance or I know your face, that's probably just open up. Uh, another hour's Yeah. I mean, potentially, I mean, that's what we were trying to do research <laughs> on. And I don't definitely in terms of the evidence out there, um, there's not, great or very strong evidence. And um, not everything that we think could help does. Um, there's There were some theories that early and detailed debriefing after trauma would be helpful, and it turned out that actually increased rates of PTSD because you're just losing it. Oh, really? Um, yeah, huh. so PTSD is a, a funny one. Um, of course, that's assuming that PTSD is the appropriate paradigm uh, what we sometimes use is the term um, whether we are cutting nature at its joints. Uh, if you can picture like a tree of pathology, am I actually identifying mm -hmm. one branch or just a bunch of leaves that are connected at their base? Um, it's sometimes very hard to know. So a lot of the research around, basically most of the research I've seen surrounding outcome, psychological outcomes from medical care either look at depression and anxiety symptoms in general which can be which is kind of like everything and then that, that's not very helpful or consider it to be related to ptsd but of course being tracked down by a murderer or being violently raped is uh, a very different series of events than watching a family member die in the hospital even if they mm -hmm. um are both very traumatic um so in terms of the research, I'm not sure I have anything specific. What yeah. is definitely clear is that effective communication is 
helpful um, when family members uh, feel like they were heard. It's helpful when um, they feel comfortable with the decisions they've made. It's been helpful. Um, I think that that's all very clear. Um, this is kind of an aside and I always end up adding more questions in when we're running out of time, but we talked a lot about like effective communication, whether it's with psychiatric patients, families, patients. Um, and we talked about how it's not taught in med school, how we're just kind of thrown into it as a trainee right now. I personally don't see where in med school it could have been added in because there's just so much you have to do. Where do you think this training should come from? I know that's another no, very difficult question. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the problem with doing it in medical school is that you don't know what type of physician you are. I feel like personally, um, I developed a great deal in my latter two years of med school. My first two years of med school, everything that somebody told me about how you interact with patients or what you do in the hospital is is forgotten and meaningless because it's not a series of facts. Um, in your and also, it's with like standardized patients who will have like a stock response, I hated and you're just like read lines. Patients. Can I just say, which is, you don't deal with real uh, patients. For those of you <laughs> listening who don't do it, they hire these actors, and I just remember walking in, <laughs> and like one guy had ketchup on his face, and he was supposed to have a seizure, like he did his tongue, and I tried to wake him up, and he didn't wake up, and all I could think was, I know you're lying. <laughs> No, you are awake. <laughs> and I gave him a sternal rub and he jumped off the table. But, um, you know, is I, I was not good at, uh, you know, um, I, I couldn't understand the experience. Yeah. Um, no, so it, it's hard there. In third and fourth year, I think it's helpful, but you haven't really had any of those conversations yourself, so it's also very hypothetical. And you don't really... Um, it's one of those, you know, you don't really know who you are until you're up in the crisis and you don't really know how you're going to interact until you're exhausted, have a bunch of sit on your plate and some attending oh, yeah. tells you to call some family member and get a goals of care, at, you know, 6 p.m. on a Friday and you get on the phone with somebody who's like, what do you want now? Why can't I talk to the attending? And you're like, uh, you know, would you like your mother to have chest compressions? You know, yeah. you don't really know what that's going to feel like till you're in that moment. Um, and now, you know, it's very helpful to me because I have stock responses and I, and not only do I have stock responses in the way that I've developed that I like to say things, but I also have a structure and I have something to fall back on when it's going wrong. And I think all those are important. I, I, I think you need need to have education and not just education, but conversation about it the whole way through. I think you need to have some structure because just call them up and be a nice person is not good enough. You have to have an understanding of, okay, mm-hmm. this is your goal. You're trying to get out these emotions. You're trying to validate these emotions. What does that mean? Um, you're trying to model. You're trying to give space. All of those things are things that you need before you're having the conversation so you can notice them during the conversation and during and after you're having those conversations so you can guide your development, which means not only do I think you need training in it the whole time, but it needs to be something you discuss. We will talk about, Hey, I gave this insulin. How did the person respond? You're attending 
will shame you on rounds the next day for doing it wrong <laughs> and um you know and and, and talk about it um and we need to and, mm-hmm. and some people really do i i don't want to say i'm like the only person who cares about this i think a lot of people in medicine care about this um we need to have that conversation we need and it's very hard to swallow your pride on this and talk it's very easy to swallow your pride and talk to the other thing being like, hey, I ordered Landis. Was that the right thing? Increase the Landis without the right thing. It can be sometimes harder to say, you know, I called up the family and they seemed um, really rushed. So I just jumped into it and said, you know, this is the decision we have to make. Um, and this is how it went. Was that the best way to do it? Because there are things that feel very um, personal. And there are things that feel very much, I mean, how you talk to people and how you come off to other people um, is really personal. Um, I spoke to a medical, there was a medical anthropologist. And the first time I found out medical anthropology was a thing, I just fell in love immediately. And every medical anthropologist I've been around, I just follow around like this and just listen to everything they say. <laughs> and I was talking to a, a medical anthropologist who was an incredibly lovely and interesting uh, person. And she, I was saying something about, you know, how we come off to our patients, some things I get away with saying that other people don't get away of saying. Because one size does not at all when it comes to um, communication. Um, and she said so offhandedly, like it wasn't even the most incredible thing I've ever heard. Um, and what we always say in anthro, you have to know your instrument. And your instrument is you. And so me being a moderately effeminate gay guy who's bald and, you know, whatever. Um, and But also six foot and a white guy. You know, these inform how I'm going to converse with people. If I go in with somebody who I share some demographics with and I communicate on that level, what am I communicating by doing that? I can get away with it. Is it always helpful? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. If I walk in to say um, a lower economic um, black family and I try to share their vernacular, I think that's going to be really insulting. Um, But I should also be really aware of some concerns and assumptions they might have and be validating of that. And um, just being aware of yourself and being aware of how you come off, um, it, it is very personal. But understanding that you are an instrument that you are engaging in medicine through, and that's your art, that's your production, um, I think is something that not everybody at every stage of medical care is ready to tackle. Um, but is really necessary because sometimes we need to realize, hey, this is how I'm going to come off. I need to be aware Mm -hmm. of that and um, just provide the best care and support I can. And then your provider persona is something you can produce with, um, with intent. 
Definitely. I think there's a lot of uh, nuances and subtleties built into this communication, which is why I think it's definitely something that should be addressed and actually worked on rather than kind of learning it by experience. Um, and this is personally, I think, something that can be built into like didactics of uh, residency programs where on the day to day, it becomes kind of cumbersome. If you have to have this on top of it, you just feel, I don't want to do this. This is not medicine. But if you have it built into uh, didactics with someone who's maybe like a uh, medical anthropologist or um, a promo for our next episode next week, um, someone who is in medical humanities, medical pedagogy, ethics, all of that kind of stuff, um, which we'll have an episode next week, goals of care, all that kind of stuff. So stay tuned for next week. But if you have someone like that, that you can talk to about this, discuss these scenarios and kind of improve, then I think that'll drastically improve it. And unfortunately, I don't think residencies have um, access to someone like that all the time. Um, and I think that it definitely would improve us as physicians, improve our quality of care for both current patients and for families and provide risk reduction prevention in a completely different light than we would traditionally think of it. So um, I think that was a great episode. We kind of wrapped up a lot, um, talked about a lot. There's a lot of nuance and difficult discussion kind of around these things, but I think you did it really well. Um, our last question that we always have on for every guest um, is that if you are at a Starbucks and let's say if we're at the uh, hospital Starbucks downstairs where I kind of bothered you the first time to come on this um, and asked you, how do I get healthy? What do you tell them in the two minutes that you're waiting for your coffee? Oh, I was supposed to prepare an answer for that, wasn't I? Um, <laughs> I've been two minutes staring at the wall thinking about what to say. Um, I think listening to your feelings. You know, when I – and that's obviously the psych answer, but um, – Mm-hmm. We, if I say, how are you doing? People may say, okay, or they may say, well, I feel overworked because I have to do this and this. And what you almost never do is close your eyes, explore and see where your feelings actually are in the minute. And that's not something we can always do. And it's not easy. Um, when people ask me, how are you feeling? My usual answer I give now, and maybe to be funny, is I'm not sure yet. And it, But it's honest because um, am I actually kind of in a pissy mood today? The people around me may have a better guess at that than me. Um, am I feeling happy? Am I feeling nervous? Um, it, it, it may not be what I would think I should be. But I can validate your thoughts, what you think could be correct or incorrect, and how you behave can be helpful or unhelpful. All your feelings are appropriate. Feelings are allowed to be stupid and ridiculous. You're allowed to think something's funny during a funeral. You're allowed to be disappointed during a wedding. Any feeling you have is just a matter of what you do with it and how you use it. None of them are wrong. And so if you can identify it and accept it, you can help it and avoid a lot of heartache. Perfect. And also stop smoking and control the blood pressure for stroke. Yeah, stroke stop. Right? Totally. I'm a stroke doctor. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, I enjoyed this conversation. Something that we don't really talk about that much on this podcast. So it was a unique perspective. And I personally love exploring u- unique perspectives. If our listeners back home enjoyed this, then uh, please drop us a comment. Um, share this on social media. Just say this was interesting or something. Rate and review our podcast. Um, thank you guys for listening. Um, and we'll see you on the next one. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help us spread the message of prevention, first off, rate and review this podcast. Second off, you can find our content on our social media platforms at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.